Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Deputy Editor Josie Tatty and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello Josie. And our senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hi. First time on the show Hannah, welcome. I know, thank <laughs> you. Welcome aboard. Thanks. And later on, we'll be talking to Free TV's Bridget Fair about the potential for more media mergers ahead. And I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see other deals come through in the future. The younger generation switching to Netflix. Still are large numbers of young people watching commercial television. And Gandhi. I think it was Gandhi that called uh, laws um, codified ethics. But first, the week's topics. AirAsia apologises for Get Off in Thailand ad. New Zealand advertising industry bodies call for Facebook to remove live streaming. DDB unveils new branding. And Nine shakes up its sales team and announces some redundancies ahead of the Nine Voyager launch. So first up, an AirAsia ad encouraging people to Get Off in Thailand has been removed from Brisbane buses after being accused of promoting sex tourism. Collective Shao, a grassroots movement against the objectification of women, took to Twitter to protest about what it called a dog whistle to sex tourists. Paul, do you think they knew what they were doing? Well, my first reaction when I saw the Collective Shout campaign was that this must be part of a broader campaign, say, get off in Kuala Lumpur or get off in Manila or something like that. But then I looked at it and no, there wasn't. So you've got to say that, yeah, the this is not a good look and maybe they did know what they were doing but really didn't think this through. And do you think it's almost one of those campaigns, if they did know what they were doing, potentially that where the sort of press coverage around it is part of the campaign itself? It could well be. I mean, that is that is a really good question, Josie. And I, I, I wonder whether that was a deliberate tactic from them, that uh, it certainly gave them plenty of coverage on that. And this is, a, uh, this is one of those challenger brands where they like to be positioned like that. Uh, yeah, but you can't help but think there was something more behind this campaign than uh, uh, just not thinking it through at all. And Hannah, what's your thoughts on it? I wonder whether um, they kind of went into it thinking it would be perceived perhaps in a cheeky manner as opposed to in a sex tourism manner, mm-hmm. and then it kind of went the wrong way for them. Um, it's obviously not the first time we've seen tourism ads that have got that cheeky side to it. It's quite usual in that area. So I do wonder whether maybe they just didn't anticipate that the backlash would be this severe. Mm. And the backlash is being quite expensive because I imagine the Brisbane Airport, for instance, which has these in big out-of-home banners, uh, that's going to that's going to be charged to either the uh, agency or to the brand itself. So it's going to be very interesting to see how much it's going to cost them. And they have announced that they're taking them down. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. As soon as logistically possible was, I think, the term that was used. So next up, the Commercial Communications Council and the Association of New Zealand Advertisers have released a joint open letter calling for Facebook to remove live streaming in the wake of the Christchurch massacre. Um, Hannah, the question I have around this is in live TV, we usually have several seconds of delay for these things. Now, obviously on Facebook, that's not really an option. I don't even know if that's actually technically possible with the manpower that Facebook have. But do you think there's any chance of that being a solution here? 
No. So I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The problem is size. Um, you think about a live TV studio where you've got, say, five people watching anything go to air live. That's five people who can step in the second they need to stop something. Whereas compare that to Facebook, which has two billion monthly users. Sheryl Sandberg herself said they reach more people than the Super Bowl. So mm. which has kind of then come back to bite them because they don't have the manpower or the technology to control this kind of event. And I think it is the case of sometimes we do try and compare something like Facebook to something like a live TV it's very impossible to do that because with live TV it's one stream that you're controlling and there's lots of people around you with Facebook there's just obviously millions and millions of live streams going on all the time and there's just physically not enough people to to actually be watching every single stream well also on this too we should keep in mind that um, the seven second delays are technological things so that TV and radio studios have that running and uh, there's a producer and the presenter have the button that they can hit uh, should anybody say anything untoward. But um, the thing is it took 15 minutes for Facebook to uh, be alerted to the stream coming out of Christchurch. So that's a long period. And buffering that is really, really going to be problematic. Also, with these live streams too, you've got lots of Q&As, lots of live action and that happening on these sites. So it's really hard to see how they could manage that. Um, and, of course, there's the other side from the government regulation that uh, the Prime Minister and Communications Minister called in the heads of the various platforms earlier this week and uh, threatened them with all sorts of uh, punishments if they don't start regulating these things. And I thought when I approached the um, the Googles and Facebooks and so on, they were remarkably relaxed about these threats. Mm. The, uh, but I just don't see how they're going to really really address this. So you don't think there's any chance of government regulation in this area at all? or I suspect there will be. Um, I'm just not sure that it's been properly thought out yet. And it's going to be, as Hannah said before, uh, the, just the nature of these streams. It's really, really going to be hard for them to, to police this. Something I saw that was really interesting is um, somebody described Facebook as necessarily reactive, which I think is the problem here. They can't get ahead of the problem. Um, so therefore they've just got to react as quickly as they can, which in this case they did. They've said two, only 200 people saw the initial live stream. The problem was it was then picked up and reposted millions of times after that, which was the actual issue. Um, so yeah, until they can develop the technology, I think manpower is not an option. Mm. Um, so it's really tech from this point. But the other thing I think, um, which is interesting in specifically in this case with people, um, being told to boycott, People have been threatening to boycott Facebook for months at this point. Mm -hmm. Facebook have been doing all sorts of, you know, dodgy business with data. Advertisers have supposedly been leaving left, right and centre, and yet it doesn't seem to have touched them. Well, and that's right. When we look at their most recent financial reports, it had slightly fallen in, um, if I recall correctly, in North America, um, again, slightly back in Europe, APAC still going up, but even in those develop mature markets not really being affected at all so people aren't deserting the platform and the industry bodies also have basically their solution was well if you can't fix it then just stop it so they're basically saying just take down the live streaming like completely do you think facebook is there any chance of Facebook doing that? No. And uh, on top of that, I mean, this isn't anathema to the internet. I mean, uh, um, and it's not just Facebook. There's all manner of uh, platforms that you can be streaming streaming live feeds on. Uh, you shut down Facebook, Google, whatever, oh, sorry, YouTube. 
there's going to be other ones that come along. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, yeah, this is just totally impractical, and it's politicians again having knee-jerk reactions. This comes back to a point I made late last year that uh, we need to be careful in the media about politicians running through knee-jerk reactions and legislations, lest we end up with a sort of digital lockout laws or something like that. I mean, even even publications that use live streaming on Facebook, like it's not, you know, being used specifically just by users, it's being used by businesses, it's being used by all sorts. So I think a call to arms to ban that function, uh, yeah, definitely seems like a knee-jerk that hasn't been thought through at all. Next up, DDB has a new logo. So DDB has released its new rebrand, which includes the agency's full name involved within the logo itself, uh, Doyle Dane Burnbatch. For once, it seems like an agency rebrand has actually been quite positively received, which I was, you know, I've just never actually seen that during my time at Mumbrella. But Paul, do you think it's a good rebrand? Well, as somebody who's been at Mumbrella about the same time as you, um, I have to admit I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the uh, readers too. And it certainly does seem to have been positively received. And uh, yeah, it's for a change, uh, a good, good upbeat rebranding story. And do you think there's something to be said with the rebrands kind of going back to the past and and playing up its roots, which is something we haven't really seen over the past few years. A lot of rebrands have been just so focused on the future, almost completely eradicating the history of the agency and everything that it stands for. So do you think that might have something to do with it too? It certainly is a step um, away from the trend that we've seen in recent months. Um, we've seen Ogilvy's name uh, being buried, um, particularly here in Australia with uh, Ogilvy PR becoming OPR and so on. Um, yeah, so it is a step forward there. I mean, J. Walter Thompson, one of the iconic names of the advertising industry, uh, uh, was buried uh, into Wonderman Thompson. Um, so, yeah, this is a this is a this is quite an interesting step in that uh, acknowledging their past rather than uh, burying the past and uh, I wouldn't say looking to the future, but um, uh, being, a bit inconven- being a little bit too convenient with merging brands and uh, coming up with new names. And we've obviously had a lot of mergers from WPP recently. Um, as you say, where a lot of the names have been erased from the history books. So do you think this is kind of DDB taking their stamp and saying, look, we're DDB, we're here, we're going to have the same name, we're not going to be changing things too too regularly. Do you think that's kind of what they're saying here? I think there's that, and also we've raised it in this podcast before, and uh, again, some of those commenters on the site have said this about some of the other brands, that uh, these are companies that advise their clients on branding and hold themselves out as expert in branding and marketing, and uh, they're not doing a particularly good job of long-term brand value with this of the name. So uh, I think, yep, DDB are... Um, I was going to say put a line in the sand, but it's not really, is it? It's uh, etching the name in concrete or uh, stone. <laughs> Do you think maybe people are just really nostalgic and they just like anything that harks back to days of yore? Yeah, I think so. And I, I do wonder if the strategy is actually quite there because it's great to reflect on the past, but I also think an agency does need to be mm. forward thinking. So it'll be interesting to see if this has any sort of effect on their strategy and in 2017 the agency launched its new business plan in which it sought to start creating quote marks unreasonable growth for brands so they're almost sort of positioning themselves as a challenger brand and trying to stand out from the pack so I think this really is quite a reflection of that. It certainly seems to be I mean the unreasonable growth tagline I 
I struggle a bit with that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, if, if it works for them, I guess it's, uh, all is good for them. And finally, Nine has shaken up its sales team yet again with the appointment of Tim Rose in the newly created role of Director of Sales for Nine Plus. Now, Hannah, there has been some reports of redundancies in both technology and sales around this one. How much do we know about this at this point? I mean, we know very little, to be fair. Um, The company has said, Nine have said that they weren't significant numbers um, and that it was just double up roles still as a reflection of Nine and Fairfax, um, which to is to be expected and I would be incredibly shocked if we don't see more redundancies in the future. You can't just combine two very mm-hmm. large companies and expect there to not be double ups. Um, but yes, I mean, the the announcement was very much focused around uh, growth and the build, you know, adding Tim into that role as opposed to losing people from the department. As they always are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I also thought was interesting with this is this push into the small to medium business market so trying to get those smaller clients advertising which traditionally the regional stations have done that but the metros haven't really been that good at connecting with the small to business small to medium business market yeah so the nine plus team which is tim will be heading up will be the point of call for businesses using the nine voyager platform do you want to maybe just explain exactly what that is well to be honest i'm I'm not fully across it but it's um but as far as i understand it's uh, another self-service platform so uh, again kind of like google adwords and that where a uh, advertiser can go on book that space and uh, they don't have to deal with a salesperson because salespeople are expensive um Mm. they all uh, they like to get big bonuses and um, they they have commissions and so on. So this this is a big overhead. So that, again, is probably why we haven't seen small businesses represented in the marketplace is that uh, it's been expensive to acquire those customers. So once it becomes self-service, it becomes a lot easier to do it. It's been interesting as well because this week we also saw Bauer um, in Europe announce that they would be doing a very similar thing. Uh, it was a very complicated press release, but <laughs> basically they said they would be launching an SME platform um, yeah, which will offer almost the exact same thing. So we're definitely seeing a trend towards these very large media companies reaching into that SME market, um, opening up doors that they have not opened up before. So it will be interesting to see where that goes from here. Next up, Paul chats to Free TV's Bridget Fair. Well, thanks for joining us today, Bridget. Um, so just to kick off, I'll throw a curly question at you. We've had seen some of the write-downs from the broadcasters in recent months uh, from Seven, Southern Cross, Stereo, and so on. What do you think the future is for free television? Well, I still think free television has a really strong future. It's obviously in a much more competitive environment than it has been to date. Um, those write-downs are reflecting some of that increased competition, but I think that it's a, it's going to be a very long time before we see an environment where there isn't going to be a significant role for free-to-air commercial television. And we can see that still in very strong numbers most evenings for news, uh, shows like Married at First Sight, My Kitchen Rules, those kind of programs, sport, all still doing significant numbers and people still want to have that shared experience and it's free. We're seeing this a lot at the moment with the ACCC inquiry. Um, one of the things that's been called out 
Is this um, inconsistency in regulation? So the television sector and the radio sector are much more tightly regulated than other channels, and of course the digital platforms are barely regulated at all. Uh, what's Free TV's thoughts on this? Well, we've been campaigning on this for quite a long time, and there are some very significant areas of regulatory imbalance, and some of the some of them are causing quite uh, significant competitive impacts. The easiest one of those is around election advertising rules, which we can see and we've been you know, calling those out for some time. Um, other ones are content rules and there's a raft of others. And I think it's great that the ACCC has called that out because what it means is that if it's harder to get your product onto our platform than it is onto other platforms, then advertisers are going to go through the path of least resistance. Uh, we don't expect that people won't want to advertise on digital platforms, but we do expect that we should be able to compete on even terms. So one of the criticisms of the ACCC draft recommendations has been that they're too much focused on vertical, um, so broadcast or uh, print, whatever. Uh, with um, with programmatic now coming across all the platforms, including television, do you think uh, we could do a better job of having that um, more standardised regulation? Well, I'm not sure I agree that the ACCC recommendations are too specific. I think what they have identified is that there are two digital platforms that have significant market power and which are unavoidable business partners for many traditional media enterprises and that uh, that may require some regulatory intervention and that regulatory intervention will apply to anybody seeking to use those platforms, not just to traditional media. So, And I think that's a very welcome development. Do you feel that uh, the ACCC asking for more regulators is a good step or uh, do, do we need any more regulators or do you think ACMA can do that job? Well, I think the jury's out on that. The ACCC has been quite careful in its wording. It has said that there may be more regulation required. I'm not sure that they have necessarily called for a new regulator. They have said that somebody needs to enforce this new regulation and that may be partly uh, the ACCC and it may be partly ACMA in the content area and um, I think that's you know something that's going to need to be thought through but I'm not I, I don't think that we necessarily need a whole new regulatory body to deal with these issues. Yeah so with that um, going Back to the election advertising, because of course we've got the federal election probably in May and um, New South Wales state election at the end of the month. Um, why does television get so much more regulation on advertising, political advertising, than uh, other channels? Look, I think it's a, a historical accident, or maybe not so much an accident, but quite deliberate. Uh, it clearly reflects the very uh, influential role that television has played in uh, the way that political parties and others have sought to deliver messages to the community um, and rules have followed accordingly. Um, it's been, television's been the preferred medium for political advertising for quite some time and um, so the rules really just reflect the greater reach and effectiveness of, of television to some extent. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is that people are increasingly using other platforms such as social media or digital platforms or even SMS to reach people and so the rules need to keep pace accordingly. Mm. So with that um with that do you do you think that legislation can ever keep um keep up with the changes that are happening in the industry? 
Oh, look, no, I don't think legislation ever can, and I'm not sure that you ever really want it to. I mean, there's always going to be some lag between technological developments and a legislative process, and I think it's probably a good thing that there is a little bit of a gap while we think about what are the implications of a particular technology. I think it was Gandhi that called uh, laws um, codified ethics, Mm. and I think some of what we're seeing now is that we haven't really understood what are the ethical implications of some of the technological developments that we've seen. So I think that when something like Cambridge Analytica came along, it helped us to understand what is really happening on some of the digital platforms and what ethical implications does that have, and then that will assist people in trying to draft the the necessary laws. And I think something like the ACCC process has been fantastic in that regard because it's helped us understand further what's really going on with these technologies and therefore what are the ethical implications and what regulatory responses might be required. And we may not have been able to actually fully understand that, maybe not even five years ago, where we didn't really fully understand what these technologies are doing, what the platforms are doing and how people might be able to use data to target information or develop fake news or other things that we're seeing occurring. So I think some lag is necessary. Um, I think when the printing press was developed, it took about 300 years for copyright laws to come into play. I'm hoping we're not going to have a lag of quite that magnitude in this instance, but I think it's important to remember that we don't want the law to get ahead of what's really happening and we do need a bit of time to understand the implications of what we're experiencing before we leap to regulate it. Mm. So just on the regulation front, um, in late 2017, uh, we had the media reforms come through. And a lot of us in the media, we were expecting to be reporting on a whole range of mergers and acquisitions and so on. And apart from the nine Fairfax transaction, not much has happened in the uh, space. Why why do you think the media companies have been so so slow to act? Well, I think... uh it's because people have wanted to assess what's the true value of a deal and so the laws are there to be taken advantage of. We have seen nine Fairfax take advantage of them and I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see other deals come through in the future and we've seen people flirt with other uh, possible transactions. I think there was a seven, nine, seven prime deal reported in the press not long after the laws went through. That didn't go to a conclusion. But, you know, I think most people are clearly looking at what are the potential opportunities, what makes sense for shareholders, and I think there will be more deals as time rolls forward. Going back to my earlier question about the writing down of the value of the television licences, a lot of that seems to come from a demographic side of things, that the younger generations just don't seem to be tuning in on um, tuning into free-to-air television as much as uh, the older demographics. How do you see um, free television um, dealing with that uh, competition from things like uh, Netflix and so on? Well, firstly, I'd say there, whilst young people do watch less commercial free-to-air television than older demographics, there still are large numbers of young people watching commercial television and I think the numbers are over an hour a day and so that's quite a significant amount of time on a daily basis for people in that sort of under 39 
demographic to be spending time with a particular technology. Um, and the other thing that we've seen many broadcasters do is diversify their offerings so that they can catch audiences in the ways that they want to be accessing content. So I think that it's there's been a reported 43% uplift in uh, BVOD viewing year on year, and that is really reflecting the different ways that people want to access content. It's an interesting thing with that um, too, with the digital platforms, and that you mentioned earlier, Cambridge Analytica. Um, but this these brand um, safety issues that uh, keep popping up, particularly with YouTube, um, and that seems that uh, television's um, in a particularly good place to take advantage of that uh, brand safety aspect. Uh, ha- have you seen the industry dealing with that? Well, I, I think that we've been very strong in calling out that commercial television can offer 100% brand safety and I think uh, we've seen many brands responding to the uncertainty around uh, YouTube and Facebook in particular and brand safety concerns on those platforms by withdrawing their spend and, you know, we've seen major banks, major telecommunications companies, food companies, Disney others who are clearly expressing serious concerns with whether their content is being able to be represented in the way that they want it to be. And that's not something that uh, television is affected by and something that we're very proud of and that we can offer that trusted environment for our advertising partners. Um, one of the things that um, seen we've been seeing over the years is um, this push to move away from ch- children's television too. So where does Free TV see the commercial um, operators in providing uh, children's television programming? Well, look, we've been quite open in questioning the ongoing relevance of children's television quotas, not because we don't think there's not a lot of quality television being made for children, and we're certainly making quite a lot of it for our platform, nor do we think that it's not important that children have access to Australian programming. Uh, But the fact is that these quotas were put in place for cultural purposes, that is that we wanted our children to be exposed to Australian voices and Australian stories. And the numbers that we are seeing of children watching those programs on our platform have declined significantly over the last decade so that the average C&P program on commercial television now is being shown to an audience of around, I think it's about 4,800 children. Um, this is not commercially sustainable. Uh, and so, and it's also clearly not delivering this, the, um, cultural outcome that those quotas were intended for. So we need to have a rethink about these quotas and try and find other ways to get that content to Australian children. Commercial broadcasters, are happy to play a role in delivery of content to Australian children. And in fact, we do in all sorts of other ways. Many children are still watching our platform. They're watching family-friendly viewing such as Ninja, such as MKR, such as MasterChef, all sorts of programs where people are watching with their families, sport and other places. But what they aren't watching is tailor-made C&P programming. And we need to have a look at whether it's right to be asking our sector to be performing what's in essence an industry support role um, rather than a cultural role, which is what the quotas are intended to deliver. That's not to say that there isn't a valuable discussion to be had around industry support for 
producers of of children's content, um, but that conversation needs to ask the question, is it the role of commercial television broadcasters to be performing industry support roles rather than delivering something to audiences which they can monetize? And it's clear that we can't with audiences of 4,800 kids and very restrictive rules around what can be advertised to children, probably quite rightly. Um, it's impossible to monetize those programs on our platform. And since we require advertising revenue in order to run a sustainable business, we need to look at this issue and try to come up with a better answer. Now, it's interesting with that, um, going back to the regulatory questions there, that um, it's a really good, the quotas, I think they came in in what, the 1970s? I think they started um, being discussed in the 70s. They were probably crystallised in the 80s. Mm. Um, And, you know, it was a very different environment. There were three commercial channels. There was the ABC and people did make appointment viewing. And most people now with children know that they are not hanging out until 11 o'clock when Romper Room comes on and waiting to sit their kids in front of the screen. They are pulling out their iPad and sitting them down in front of iView or YouTube or something else um, at the time that suits them. Um, and that's why the current, the, the old rules set up for a completely different set of circumstances are really no longer applicable. So the question then becomes, how do we, how well can we future-proof or technology-proof any regulations that come in now? Well, we just have to do our best. I mean, every regulation will be subject to the change that we're seeing in consumption and technology. Um, and many of these uh, quotas and so forth are really only in place for five or ten years. So it's not that these things need to be locked in for 50 years. What we need to do is take our best guess at how people are consuming content at the moment, what is the right way to ensure that we deliver the cultural outcomes that we all agree are desirable and then try and work out a way to do that. And if it needs to be revisited in five years, so be it. On that, Bridget, I'd like to thank you very much for joining the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you very much. And finally, we've been busy planning our sessions for Mumbrella 360. The first speakers have now been announced. So if you want to check those out, you can visit mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 to find out more. And remember that you've got until April the 8th to book your early bird ticket, so not long. And if you're in the future ahead of that date, then I'm sorry, you have missed out. Should have listened to this earlier. That's all for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.